0: Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. This week my guest is Brock Gibbs and Brock is the author of the book My Co-Workers Think I'm a Pro. A hilarious reflection on Brock's first years in triathlon and some of the experiences and mistakes I think we've all had. I was definitely nodding my head in agreement and I have to say it brought back a few good memories reading the book and chatting with Brock. Anyway, rather than spoiling the story, let's crack on and hear from Brock himself. Welcome to the show, Brock Gibbs.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Simon. good
0: to be here. No, it's a great pleasure. I invited you actually, Beth, my assistant, read your book first and she was absolutely riveted to it and in stitches. You know, she was reading it while we were together one day and I kept wondering what she was laughing out loud at. Um, and it was your book and the and the incidences. So she said, you've got to get this guy on a podcast. He's so funny. And I have to say, I, I read the first bit and I'm like, okay. And she said, no, no, you need to get in the right frame of mind. I, I have read it all. I have read all of your book and I laughed out loud. And, and as I went through some of the things we're going to talk about now i recalled my triathlon firsts you know my first race my first half ironman my first this my first that and i and i found there was a lot of similarities so yeah i'm hoping that the listeners are going to uh, get that too
1: yeah i hope so too i was in fact i remember the day bethany uh, emailed me i was at work and i was on a spare period and I was just checking through my, you know, my social media, like you're not supposed to do it work, but I do it anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Like kids get in detention. For. <laughs> exactly.
1: I'm, I'm yelling at a kid, Hey, put your phone down. Hold on. I got to type this up anyway. And I saw the message and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, so instantly I went and okay. I got during my lunch break that day, I went and I started to listen to any of your episodes as I've been doing religiously since. And I was thinking to myself, why am I going to be on this podcast? I don't, I don't fit at all because, you know, I just wrote a funny little book. Um, but again, I hope, I hope that the listeners will find some nuggets of information and maybe have a little laugh and change things up a bit.
0: Well, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I've been in the sport for 34 years now since I did my first triathlon and, you know, I've been coaching. I've coached highest level in several different sports. Uh, um, I've been coaching and tutoring triathlon for 25 years. But you can always learn something. And being reminded of things that you did or that you've forgotten or that you perhaps take for granted helps you to reflect and perhaps learn lessons that you should have picked up on long ago. Um, and that, and that's what reading your book did for me, I think. And I, and I think that there'll be listeners who are hearing this who are thinking, well, I just did my first triathlon. I'll this. I'll read that, and they'll they'll be going, "Oh, wow, that was me. That was me." And then there'll be people who did triathlons twenty years ago going, "Oh yeah, actually, I remember that. That was me."
1: Yeah, that was a long time ago. It's true, like you said, you do forget certain things. And the more proficient you become at something, it's kind of the same um, idea as as really top level professional athletes who later become coaches tend not to be that good at it. Mm. Because to them it's just like a hockey coach, Wayne Gretzky coached for a while, and it was simple to him. Well, all you got to do is put that puck in the net. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I don't know how, to, how, how do I do that? Like it just comes naturally to you. So yeah. we do forget things along the way, and and every now and again when I go to a race, I'll see people and I shake your head. And say, yeah, I remember doing that. What a mistake. Yeah,
0: yeah. exactly. Well, and also it it, it also reminds me that a lot of the things that happen now didn't happen when I first started triathlon, you know, there weren't any Garmin's, there weren't any, there wasn't the training peaks. There weren't really any triathlon magazines. There probably were the, a handful of people who were just playing at it. There weren't really any triathlon coaches either. So we did figure it out by ourselves, which is actually probably the, that the impression people will get from your book is that you were figuring it out by yourself as you were going along.
1: Absolutely. That's the way I was doing it. Um, almost on purpose. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that is how it was. And when I started, which wasn't that long ago, a lot, definitely not 35 years ago, there weren't many garments and Wahoos and training peaks then either things. There was no disc brakes, forget that. <laughs> and even, yeah. even just try, um, transition rituals and stuff are totally different from my, when my first race, you were allowed to bring whatever you want. People would leave gigantic luggage in yeah. transition next yeah. to their bike. You, you you have a little tiny space now you can put a gel there you go there's your spot
0: well i work at some races now as a commentator so we have a bit of fun um the race referee of these races um, um donna uh, and i have a wander through transition and she's a real stickler for you know people breaking the rules so there's all sorts of things you're not allowed to do to mark your bike you know to mark your position in transition so uh, when I started, you'd get a big yellow towel and you'd put it there so, or a flag. You'd have a flag on a, you know, like almost like on a fishing rod yeah. um, that would flutter in the thing. And, oh, there's my bike there. Or uh, And now Donna goes around if people, that they, they get told in the race briefing you're not allowed to do that. Um, but if people do do that, either because they've not listened or because they've ignored her, then she'll go around and remove all of this stuff. But you used to be able to put talcum powder on the ground with an arrow pointing to here you know, um, yeah, none of that anymore. And I, I like you say that you could take a big box in with all of your kids. It was like you're going on, uh, on, on an expedition.
1: Oh yeah. That that's one of the things that's, well, first of all, it's different in, in North America than in, in Europe, um, and, and Africa and Australia, uh, here in North America, you can mark up your stuff. But when I've done races in, like I did the world championships in Nice, uh, 70.3, I guess 29th, that was the last race I did. I did what I always do here with my transition bags that Ironman gives you. I just, with a Sharpie, put my name on the bag just so that there's that extra other than my race number mm. away from me and maybe gave me a generic bag and just put your race number on. Yeah, You have to wear in Europe, you have to wear your race belt on the bike, Yeah, which I think is ridiculous, but because it blows off half the time. And in North mm. America, they, they don't think of that but my first my first ironman branded race people literally were bringing shopping carts and 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 all kinds of buckets and i just kept wondering what what's in there what will you need that yeah. i up until now have not needed what am i in store for is this going to be that hard like do i have to change my name to tenzing <laughs> <laughs> just to just to do the race what's up here I was,
0: wow so Let's roll back then, Brock. Um, when, when was your first triathlon?
1: My first triathlon? Uh, when? What year? It was yeah. 20, uh, I guess, seven years ago, eight years ago. Okay, and,
0: so uh, 2013, yeah?
1: 2013, yeah. That's but you,
0: right. you were a runner before then, right?
1: I was a runner before. Um, mostly, my growing up, I was a hockey player. Um, I live in Canada, so I think I don't think you're allowed to grow up without having a hockey stick and skates. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did that, I actually did that at a quite a high level. I played in college and everything. And then, uh, then that sort of ended because I didn't grow past five foot nine and I couldn't get any heavier than 155 pounds. So that avenue of pleasure was kind of closed off and I moved to Vancouver. I live, I grew up in Montreal and that's where I live now, but I had moved to Vancouver and a friend that I came in contact with, he was a runner. So he said, well, why don't you come out with me? So I did, and we would run, and it's beautiful to run out there. And, and we even did a couple of 10K races together. So I became a runner, and then I ended up going to do my master's degree in Nova Scotia, and I was out running one day, and the cross-country running coach for the university saw me and said, why don't you try out for the team? So I did, and that's when I became a true runner. Hmm. So that's sort of my, my triathlon background, if you will is running.
0: Okay. And then so what was it that finally got you to do a triathlon? Well, the thing
1: that finally got me to do a triathlon uh um I actually talk about it in my book is I was I was doing I was driving to the Boston marathon. Um I think it was my second or third year competing in that and well competing running in that. I wasn't competing. <laughs> I'm nowhere near the front. But um and uh I kept the drive from Montreal to Boston is five five and a half hours, and it's all on an interstate, so it's kind of boring. And I had done it before, and I figured this time I'm going to get a book on on CD to listen to in the car, so I don't have to listen to the same U2 tape that I have, you know, in my glove compartment that where I know all the words to every single song. And so I got the a book on on CD. It was um, Bill Bryson. I don't know if you've he's a travel writer. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And notes Notes from a small island, I think is.
1: Yeah, that was another one of his books. love that book. But this one was the one about um, a walk in the woods. It's called about his travails along the uh, Appalachian Trail with Mm. a friend. And I thought I was so looking forward to it. I had actually read the book before, so I wanted to listen to it and see what it sounded like in his voice. And I got on the highway and I figured, okay, now I passed the border and it was time to pop the CD in. So I opened up the box, put the CD in and pressed play. And it was not Bill Bryson. It was Lance Armstrong's book, It's Not About the Bike, which kind of, you know, I was a bit pissed off actually at first because like I was was expecting this other book and then now there's Lance Armstrong. It's not what I wanted to hear, but I listened to it. And um, I enjoyed the book very much. Um, Just because the thing that I liked about the book is completely different from what most people like about it. I liked the parts where he actually, even though it's called It's Not About the Bike, it's the parts that were about biking and bike racing and bikes that I liked so much. Hmm. So I went and I did the race. And when I got home, I said, I got to get into cycling. So I did. And I read everything there was about cycling. I rode my bike constantly. I bought a turbo trainer for my mountain bike, which was a mistake because I had knobby tires and the neighbors were not happy with me in my little apartment. And uh, so I biked everywhere and I tried, I got to figure out a way to race my bike. Cause I didn't know, I mean, I never done it before. So I didn't know that there were actual bike races and grand fondos and crits and stuff that you could do as an amateur, like you can do with running. You know, you can, you can sign up for a 10 K Turkey trot or a park run. I didn't know they had that for cycling. they do, I just didn't know. So the only thing I could think of that where I could ride my bike was in the middle bit of a triathlon. I had heard of that before. So I Mm -hmm. figured, I guess, I guess I have to become a triathlete. So that's what I did.
0: Yeah, because cycling's not a huge... I wouldn't have thought cycling's a hugely popular sport even today in Canada, is it? There's probably not much mainstream TV coverage even... you know. I mean, we've got the Tour de France going on at the moment, but you probably would have to go to a specialist uh, cable channel to find the Tour de France.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's on an app, Flow Sports. That's the only way. Or GCN Plus, but that's blacked out in Canada for the Tour. But do you, it's not on television. It oh. used to be, uh, but that was the only... Oh, do we have two races in Quebec, the, the, the Montreal race and the Quebec city race? Those come on TV, but they're canceled this year. Everything in Quebec is canceled still, and then they won't be happening. So, yeah, cycling was not something, or triathlon for that matter, were not things. They're still not, really, even though we have a few Canadians in the tour this year. Wow. One of them stood on the podium two days ago.
0: <laughs> Hi, who was that then?
1: Hugo Hull. He's actually from just down the road.
0: Okay. Um,
1: yeah. And but he, nobody here knows who he is. If you were to say, "Oh, Hugo, who was on the podium?" They'd look at you. Know, Does he play for the Canadians? You know, they don't. Nobody, nobody knows cycling.
0: But you've had some standout triathletes from Canada. I mean, Simon Whitfield was Olympic champion, the first Olympic, the first champion, Olympic champion
1: at that. Yeah, but then he kind of dis. He's a funny guy. Uh, you probably met him before.
0: Well, no, he came. He did come back. He won. He won. Uh, was it? Um, in Athens, I think he got another medal. I think he got a silver or a bronze yeah. in Athens. And uh, I've met Salmon Whitfield actually. He came to York he one year. He's friends uh, he who staying with the Brownleys over here. And uh, I met him at uh, a race on, on New Year's Eve. And um, he decided it was too cold even for him to race. So he was watching all wrapped up in his coat. Uh, yep. Yeah, obviously, you've got uh, um, uh, Findley Paula Findley. who was world champion and doing really well at 70.3. He got. And then in 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 Ironman, of course, Peter Reed, you know, Ironman winner three times. Yeah. Um, who else did you have from Canada? Um, well, we have Lionel Sanders. Lionel, oh yeah, who could? Yeah, Lionel. Yeah. <laughs> Although he he, uh, he doesn't,
1: I guess, yeah, it, he kind of look comes off less Canadian as the years go by. I find, um, which I don't know if that's a, a shame or not, but or what that means. It's just some people would not automatically think, oh, there's a Canadian, like you would with Simon Whitfield. It's mm. just it's, he is prototypically Canadian.
0: Well, of course you've got Barry Shepley, who's the ITU commentator, isn't he? If you yeah. listen to the uh, if you listen to the global coverage of of the ITU World Series races, Barry's one of the commentators, at least he was, and um, so he's he's quite well known. So it's not like triathlons a minority sport really in Canada, is it? I guess it, it just it sure- doesn't doesn't figure alongside uh, hockey.
1: No, it doesn't, and and we have an ITU race here in Montreal every year. Mm. A, a big one uh, and yet nobody it's people will show up to that race because it's something happening downtown in the city and it's kind of neat and people wonder what's going on and but people they don't understand it. it's kind of like when i watch australian rules football i'm kind of okay well, and i'm a phys ed teacher so i know sports and I'm, mm. i don't i don't why is he punching the football i don't understand <laughs> what's going on or cricket.
0: Yeah, well, cricket, yeah. I don't think anybody in the UK understands cricket apart from the avid cricket fans. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: cricket. I, I, one year I, I went traveling through Scotland for three weeks and I showed up to in um, Glasgow, stayed in a hotel, put the TV on. There was a cricket test match. I don't even know what that means, but there was a cricket game on. And then I traveled through Scotland. Three weeks later, came back to the same hotel room, turned the TV on, same game. I'm like, what's going on? Why can't these people finish the game?
0: <laughs> Next one in the series, it would have been. Yeah, I guess. They do, they do. I mean, they seem to last an eternity, but they are generally only five days. <laughs> only um, five days. Only five days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that first triathlon then, uh, it was a high, I think from your book, I remember it was a hybrid distance, wasn't it? One wasn't a standard um, distance or a sprint. It was sort of somewhere in between, and it was an open water swim, which yes. – uh, which is terrifying for a lot of people who've got experience. Never mind a first timer.
1: Oh, absolutely! It was a, it was a hybrid distance. I think the swim was 750 meters only, but I remember looking out at the the boys that were in, and it was salt water, It was like ocean, sort of. It was a sound, so it's ocean water, but lots of jellyfish too, which scared the, scared me. But I remember looking out at the boys and thinking that's got to be five or six kilometers at least to that first buoy. I I couldn't you know it was really far and yeah the open the open water thing scared me as it scares most people um and I didn't really understand why that scared me because I've grown up swimming in open water I was a kayaker I was a competitive kayaker all my life national championships and all kinds of things Mm -hmm. and like I grew up swimming, jumping off train bridges and cliffs, and having a grand old time. I think that the problem is for me, and I think it's the same with most first timers. Is it's it's the wetsuit. Yeah. <laughs> that first experience with the wetsuit. Uh, if I have any, I mean, advice, just uh, quickly is your first race. Make sure you've had the wetsuit on beforehand. Don't don't try it on the first your first time at a race. Because uh, that that put me in somewhere that I've never been before in any other walk of, of life. I've never, never been that anxious before.
0: Yeah, it can be quite restrictive. I think the same happens every time you put a wetsuit on each season. Absolutely. You know, the first yeah. The first time you put it on again, it feels like the wetsuit shrunk. I mean, I'm sure they do shrink. Feels like yeah. a shrink, and I'm I'm hearing all sorts of stories now of people who haven't worn their wetsuit for eighteen months that are putting it on and say, "No, it's definitely shrunk in the cupboard." It's definitely. <laughs> yeah. I know I know rubber stretches, but this one's definitely going the other way. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So uh,
1: I think it's the urine.
0: <laughs> maybe, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I remember that with the wetsuit. I, I, I in fact, I, I can distinctly remember it being the wetsuit that that caused me the anxiety that I had. Uh, I, I I put it on when I bought it up to my waist and said, okay, I'm a medium. It says M on it. Everything I own is medium. It's fine. I'll buy it. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later was the race. And I, I remember putting it on up to my waist at the car, walking down to the beach with my girlfriend and my son, feeling like such a, a wonderful gladiator. And it was time to do a warm-up swim. So I mine had no sleeves on it, the first one. So I didn't have to wrestle with that. I, I got it up over my chest and I had my girlfriend zip it up. And as the the further the zipper went, mine goes zip from bottom to top. And as it got closer and closer up my spine, it felt like, like peristalsis, you know, like, like yeah. body was pushing poop through, but it was pushing nervousness from my butt all the way up to my frontal. I could just feel it getting worse and worse and worse because it was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And I was feeling anxious. Therefore I needed to hyperventilate, but my chest wouldn't open. It was just that the wetsuit was causing my chest to compress as it's supposed to but I I couldn't breathe and then the last step was when she flipped that little velcro strap at the top that was it I I I, I've never felt panic like that before and which was made worse when I I pretended to feel good about it and gave her the thumbs up and walked into the water and this is the first time I'd ever been in a wetsuit actually in water and I couldn't feel the water you know I mean like like as I was walking in, it was the water was getting higher and higher up the wetsuit, but I couldn't there was I couldn't feel the water. It wasn't touching my skin right away. So it was my brain was going crazy trying to figure out why can't you feel something that you can see? Oh, and by the way, you can't breathe and you're probably gonna die in 20 minutes, but wow, you can't feel the water. What's going on here? And then I completely forgot how to swim. And oh, it was just my warm-up swim was was the worst experience of my life until the race started. And then that was the worst experience of my life.
0: <laughs> but you, you didn't have a swim background, did you? So I, I no. remember, re- so as I'm reading your book and thinking about your swim practice, yeah, it sounded like you were very very much a novice when it came to swimming.
1: Oh yeah, stupid, I think is the word you were looking for.
0: I was trying to be politically <laughs> correct.
1: No, I mean, my, like I said, my before the, my first triathlon, I did zero swimming. I had done some swimming 15 years ago at university with my cross country running coach. He brought me to the pool and said, "You should do some swimming just to to get cross training, more or less." And uh, so I hadn't swam a length of a pool in 15 years.
0: So you did no training at all for that race, and you just the only no, preparation you did was buying a wetsuit
1: for the swim. Yeah, that was it. Wow! Lots of biking, lots of running, and I bought a wetsuit. That's all I needed.
0: Yeah, and I guess I guess because. You might think, well, look, I've, I've been a kayaker. I know how to handle water. I was swam as a kid. It's, what, it's only 750 meters. How difficult can that be, right?
1: Yeah. And I have a pool in my backyard an above ground. Like it's a pool. I, I know water. I take a shower every day. How hard can it be, <laughs> right? You know, it's just, it's just swimming. And as I say in my book, growing up, I took swimming lessons. I almost became a lifeguard. The only reason I didn't is because I got another job instead. So I know how to swim but not with a wetsuit on and not in a race. And swimming is one of those things. You know how they say, oh, it's like riding a bike. You never forget how. Yeah, you forget how in a hurry. You forget, well, just over the pandemic, I forgot how to swim again. Yeah, so that was was rough. So after the first triathlon, I knew, okay, because everything else went very, very well in that race.
0: Hold on a minute. There's something I think we need to tell the listeners about that first race because uh, that zip that was done up so tightly didn't stay done up, did it?
1: oh no it did not <laughs> because when we were at the starting line like uh, it was just too constricted so i pulled it down i definitely got rid of that ridiculous velcro thing that i still don't do up i can't and i, I unzipped a bit and i was we we're waiting you know when you're at the, the beach and you're waiting for the starting uh, horn and in north america they always play the national anthem um, so that was going on. And I was, I was so nervous. I couldn't believe I was going to have to do this. And there was people everywhere. And I had managed to to sort of slide my way to the back of the pack as much as I could. And this giant guy behind me says, yo, dude, your wetsuit's undone. And he went to to start to zip it up and said, you, might, you want me to zip it up? And I... like. <laughs> my head was saying all kinds of very, very nasty stuff. Like, dude, if you, if you touch the zipper, I'm going to kill you. Like, there's no question. You're a dead man. But I just politely said, no, actually, no, it's, it's broken. Don't worry about it. I I like it like that. So he let, he let it go. But yeah, um, to this day, I still, whenever, like you said, whenever I put it on for that first time, it's like, Ooh, Oh, okay. Cause it's the breathing for me. It's all about the breathing Uh, in a, I just get worried before Uh, things start.
0: You've just reminded me of a couple of stories. Um, I I mentioned to you before that about doing Ironman Canada. I was stood there on the beach or in the, in the water up to our waist, you know, with a friend, we've done several races together before. He's a good swimmer. I'm a good swimmer. So we're just relaxed and looking around and this guy comes up to us and he, he walks up and he said, do you mind doing my wetsuit up please? And we both looked at each other and then looked at his wetsuit. And I'm trying to register what's wrong with this wetsuit. And then all of a sudden, Steve says, That's a new wetsuit, mate. Is that why is that a new one with the zip up the front? And all of a sudden he went, Oh man, I've never worn this suit before. So he was like he'd have been like you, Brock. You know, he's bought his suit, put it on, and then in his panic, because it's his big race, he's he's got it on the wrong way around. So I think there was only five minutes to go till the race, um, and uh, he was hurriedly trying to get this suit off in the lake and put it on again while everybody was pushing forward. The, the next story was, in again, in Ironman Canada, I'm doing my warm-up, and they're doing that thing where there's a national anthem, and I hadn't heard it, and uh, this big guy stops me, puts his hand on my head, and he stops me, and he goes, Hey, buddy, national anthem. And I'm like, Yeah, not mine, though, mate. And I tried to carry on swimming, but he was too big for me. He said, We'll stop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess we're stopping.
0: I guess we're stopping. And then a, a third race I did in, in Switzerland, um, I decided I was going to get into the water 20 minutes before and do my warm up. So me and a friend were there on the beach and I, I got my suit up and it, it, somehow it got a bit jammed. There might've been a bit of material stuck in the zip about halfway up. So I'm, he's saying I can't move it size. So I said, we'll just give it a big yank Andy. And he pulled it and the whole thing came apart. Oh, <sighs> I'm like, oh no! So I got to get the wetsuit off, try and get you know get get the material out and get the suit all lined up again. The clock's counting down. I managed to get the suit done up with about 15 seconds to spare before the gun went off. So my my warm up was a heart a heart raising panic while I got my wetsuit on rather than a few hundred meters of swimming. But um,
1: I had a similar experience exactly to that uh, in 2019. Um, I was racing the Alpe d'Huez triathlon. Mm. And it was the night before, and and you know I'm I'm going through all my race kit because you know that race you have to actually ride your bike to the start, so it's like a 30k bike ride before the race starts, which is which is actually kind of cool because it's all downhill. But I was getting all my stuff together, and like you did, I I, I was zipping my wetsuit because I wanted to zip it up so that I could roll it up to get it in the bag to so I could ride my bike down. And I zipped it up great, and so I unzipped it and I zipped it right off of the, I took the zipper part off and I said, like, Oh no. And for a split second, because my first experience with a wetsuit was so bad, I actually had a moment of relief. I thought, Oh, maybe I won't have to wear this tomorrow. And then I remembered uh, it's going to be in a lake that's 15 degrees Celsius. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get this fixed. And then it was a total panic because it was like eight thirty at night the, the village Alpe d'Huez, there's, there's nothing open. I was going, I went on my phone. I was saying, is there anybody who, who has an extra wetsuit? Like who brings an extra wetsuit, right? But I was panicking. And I actually, I'm walking through the town and I saw people who had their wetsuits drying on their <laughs> balconies. I was thinking, Ooh, I want that one looks like it might fit me. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. oh, should I steal? No, I can't do that. But yeah, and, and I've had actually one for the first four or five triathlons I've, I was in, I actually prayed that they would cancel the swim. That's how bad it was. Mm-hmm. And in Santa Rosa, California, I actually had the wish came true. But by that point, I was actually upset because I was you know, I'm a decent swimmer now. But they actually canceled the swim because of fog. So, and a lot. So I remember seeing, remember you were saying, Do you see people uh, making the same mistakes you did? I remember that day looking around, I was actually you know, upset that they canceled the swim. I could see so many people in the lineup for the, for the toilets. Like, oh, thank God, we don't have to swim.
0: Yeah. I remember doing Ironman Switzerland one year and that race traditionally, the lake gets very warm and it's usually pretty warm in in Zurich in the, in the middle of summer. So there's always a debate about whether the water temperature is going to be over the, you know, the Ironman limit. And the day before they were saying it's probably going to be an on wetsuit swim in in the briefing, you could see 80% of the heart's, sinking people's shoulders just slumping and me and me and my two mates were there and my partner at the time were like yes because we're all good swimmers you know we're like everybody's got their their skin suit and uh, we're ready and then the next morning at six o'clock they must have found the coldest part of the lake thrown the uh, cup into the deepest part of the lake to get the coldest bit of water and measured it at 20 degrees and it's like everybody it's going to be a wetsuit swim the shoulders of 80% of people rose and 20% of them, including us, were like, ah, oh, man. Oh, yeah. So, but you had an epiphany moment, didn't you, I recall, where you sat, you you weren't feeling so good, and you went and sat on the bank for about 15 minutes, just staring out into the lake and breathing. And it seemed like from that point forward, um, a whole weight was lifted off your shoulders. Do you, can you recall that moment for the listeners and, and sort of try and explain what you think happened there?
1: Absolutely, that was uh, that was in my first full year of triathlon. So I, I my my first year, my first first year, I did the Connecticut race. Then I said, okay, I'm going to go up to the Olympic distance. I did a race in Ottawa, just down the street, well, two hours down the street, and then I did a half Ironman length race, but not Ironman branded. Um, that was my first year. Then the the next year after that, I said, okay, now I'm a triathlete. Let's do this properly, and I. I entered uh, Ironman 70.3 Syracuse with the intention of qualifying for the world championship that fall in Las Vegas. And I did. I came in second in my age group, and it was fantastic. So I went to Las Vegas. Um, still, every, every swim I would do, uh, even, even practice swims, were uh, there was always a little bit of anxiety from that first triathlon forward. And in Las Vegas, I got there a few days early and i figured okay i'm going to do a practice swim in the the lake that, that they had for us which wasn't it was a man-made sort of golf course lake
0: is that it, a Hen- it's not henderson lake is it that one
1: no that they this one it's out in henderson but it's a it's a man- it's at a hotel it basically felt like happy gilmore jumping in to get a golf ball that's what it felt like and it was hot which meant there was no wetsuit which all the training that i had done that whole year had either been every swim I had done, either had been in a wetsuit, which I was comfortable in now. I I because I'm not a good swimmer like yourself, I love the wetsuit now. I either had that or a pole boy between my legs. I never swam without one of those two things. And those two things are magical for people who aren't good swimmers.
0: I should that, imagine oh, that half our listeners and not more than half our listeners are nodding along and feeling your comfort with those two items. Oh yeah.
1: That pool boy, oh, I loved that thing. I, I would have married it if I could. But anyway, so I, did my, I went out to do my practice swim, and I jumped in the water. They were only letting us in the water like 10 people at a time, as would be the race kind of thing. So I jumped in the water, which felt like soup. It actually felt like porridge. And, uh, and I started to swim, and instantly my feet sank. It felt like I was swimming vertically, like an anchor. And I thought, oh, no. I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to do this. And because of that, my anxiety levels rose. And I just basically did a 200 meter loop, got out of the water and decided, well, I get, I'm going to do the race, but it's going to be the worst experience of my life. I'm going to do so poorly. I've spent all this money to get here, brought my family, rented race wheels, which cost me $400 (laughs) the day before. It's all this stuff. Oh, I just made such a mistake. So I couldn't breathe. So all, all that day, I, I, I've, I tried to get my breathing under control and I couldn't. I even considered going to a pharmacy to buy a bronchodilator because I thought I must be having an asthma attack, even though I don't have asthma, never have had asthma, have ne- never had any breathing problem at all, other than a bad cold from time to time. So I didn't sleep that night um, and the next day was race day. And again, my girlfriend drove me to the, the, the start area, T1. And I dropped my stuff off. I was really stupidly early. Like it was still very dark out and raining in Las Vegas, if you can figure <laughs> that out. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go off on my own, which I always do anyway. And I walked along the bank of the fake lake and I found a couple of uh, like evergreen trees, like Christmas trees. And I just sat next to one of them and I literally thought about zero, nothing. There was nothing. I was doing nothing. Other than what goes on inside your body unconsciously, like digesting and all that like blood moving through your veins and stuff like that. I did nothing. I thought about nothing. It was kind of like being in high school in math class. Like, I'm definitely not thinking about what they want me to think about. And it was empty space in my brain. And I just, I was gone for 20 minutes to half an hour. Just completely at peace, at ease. And then 20 minutes later, I just kind of woke up went to the bathroom, took a pee under the tree. And then I felt so good. My breathing was, I was breathing deep, huge liters of oxygen were coming in and out of my body. And I just felt, I was going to just say confident. It wasn't confident. It was just lack of anxiety. It just Mm -hmm. felt like I'm supposed to feel. And I walked to the starting corral, chit chatted with all the people around me, which I never do. And it was just having such a good time. And since that day, Um, I've never had any major anxiety moments except for once, um, since in the swim, I've never had it in the bike and the run that that's, that's, that's just something I love to do. Uh -uh. And, uh, I, I guess what I did was I meditated, but I, without knowing that I did that, you know what I mean? Um, and I've tried since to replicate that, to get it back. And, and I've never been able to, I think it's because I'm trying too hard. Mm. I don't know. I've never, I've never been coached how, how to meditate. So, but it was, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. Cause I just, the when I woke up from the trance that I was in, it was just, wow. There was, I felt like, it's like when you take a really big poop, your belt, your pants feel better after that's how my whole body felt. I just felt lighter. I felt like I could float.
0: Well, I guess, I guess the listeners will probably be thinking the same, maybe not the uh, feeling like they do after a poop, but definitely um, that moment where the anxiety goes. Cause uh, I would think that for 80% of triathletes, that, that swim section is what causes the most anxiety. And, you know, I mean, for me, that's the happiest part of my day. We'll talk about that a bit, a bit later on about what it means for your actual race. But for most people, I can sense that their day is only going to get better when they exit the water.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's when the day starts.
0: <laughs> you were, that first triathlon, um, I remember thinking as I was reading your book, you know, there's a definite case of imposter syndrome here as you were walking around that transition. And I, I can recall that. That's one of those things that I do recall from those early triathlons. I was getting freaked out by all these expensive bikes and people that were really lean and they'd got all the kit and they they were talking a different language to me. And I felt like I didn't belong there.
1: Oh, yeah, and I felt the th- same.
0: Yeah, and the, I can remember the day. It was probably in my first season. I so that would be nineteen eighty eight. I went to this race, and there was a guy there with a um, oh, a kestrel kestrel hmm. bike, right? And the kestrels are the ones that didn't have the seat post. It was a frame, but it had the seat post missing, which was supposed to add take some of the sort of stiffness out of the frame. This bike was a super aero bike and it was a white bike and he had a disc white disc wheel on. It, and I thought that guy must be a pro. And if he's not, he's got to be a professional. Or he's got to be, he's got to be absolutely brilliant. And about halfway, halfway around on the swim, I overtook him and he was going, he was going at a pace I thought was quite slow. And I'm like, Oh, hold on a minute. I've overtaken people that have got, you know, back then a guy, a guy had had a bike that was 2000 pounds. And then at the end, after after I'd finished, you know, he did, he never caught me up. After I finished, I saw him trying to put this bike on top of his Porsche 911, and I realised at that point then that this guy he perhaps wasn't the best triathlete, but he just got a very well loaded wallet, and he could afford to buy the nice gear. And that that was the bit, that was the epiphany for me that um, that there was a lot of all the gear. No idea, people at these races, but it is intimidating, isn't it, for your first time?
1: Oh, absolutely. And your fir- your first once you've been there, then then you look at that guy and you think, ah chump um and you do the opposite too you look at another guy oh that guy looks like my dad <laughs> yeah kind of you know, a little bit too much junk in the trunk there and he's he's right up with you most of the way but yeah that first that first day in tra- in transition uh before the race there was so much going on that that i didn't understand and just that fact kind of shocked me because I've, i have had raced lots of things before um, especially the type of thing like a triathlon where most of them, all you have to do is sign up and anybody can come in. Um, so like I've done 10 K runs, I've done marathons, I've done ultra marathons where you kind of, you just show up and you, you race. So I didn't expect it to be that foreign to me, but it was like the one thing that really struck me that stuck out to me the most was the pumping of the tire.
0: Oh, Yes. I, I've I, never got I, my head around that, and I, I was I, nodding along with you at
1: that one. I, I to this day, I, I I don't I don't get it. It's like because the the guy right next to me had a I have the same pump now. It was a yellow uh, floor pump. Joe Blow is the brand, mm. and he I watched him uh, uh, loosen the valve on his on his wheels and take all the air out, and I actually saw the bike sink. And then he attached the pump and pumped it back up. Mm -hmm. And I I thought to myself, wow, there's an expiry date on air, I guess, because he just got rid of the old stuff and is putting in the new stuff. It's the same air. Like it's it's not like it's made. This one's made out of kryptonite or something. It's just air. And to this day, that blows me away. But there were all kinds of things back then. I didn't know my way around a bicycle very, very well. And they were checking things and looking at different angles and spinning the wheel and getting, I guess what they were doing is getting it in the right gear to start. Cause the start of the bike was uphill. I never thought of that. These are one of the things that, that I now think of that you didn't think of then, but all these things. And I remember looking at my bike and thinking, okay, well there's five things on that bike that I know what they are. And two of them are wheels. So like, uh, I don't even know what to check and I wouldn't know if it was wrong in the first place, you know? I, I, <laughs> I,
0: yeah, I th- I think half of that stuff is nerves is people have just got time and they don't know what to do with that time. And so rather than sitting down and thinking about the anxiety of the swim, it's like, you know, if I just check this and then I'll check it again and oh, well, I better check it again just in case it's gone wrong since the last time I checked it two minutes ago. And uh, and then, and, and I, I also think that there's there's that, sort of herd instinct when when you see somebody checking their chain you think oh oh actually i better check my chain as well i mean if you know if you get your bike serviced regularly unless there's some sort of mechanical default with your chain or with the derailleur it shouldn't snap right no If, if unless you don't take care of it and it's full of gunk and it's just got rusted up or it's it's decayed or something if you take care of your bike and you've looked at it since the last race there's no reason that anything should go wrong with the chain uh, or whatever but of course you've got to check it because it gives you peace of mind Uh, that whole thing about the the deflating of tires i've debated this with with you know guys who are bike mechanics i'm like what is what are they doing i mean even even you see this in Hawaii. I volunteered in the transition in, in Kona a few times and it gets really hot there on the tarmac, but it, get, it gets to 40 degrees. Tyres can stand temperature greater than 40 degrees in the sun. Absolutely. You know, you yeah. mean you go, you stop on a ride. OK, so you, you you go out on a ride with your friends and you stop for lunch and you leave your bike out in the sun for an hour. And you don't you don't deflate your tires before you have lunch and come back, do you? you? Leave it there in the hot sun. On on, on race morning, the bike's going to be there, and the sun's just coming up when everybody gets out the water, so it hasn't had a chance to heat up, really. Um, no, I... and and the big the biggest problem. And I do you do hear tires pop in transition, but often I think that's because when people have travelled and deflated them and then pumped them up again, they've been so flat that a bit of the inner tubes got pinched. And then it's inflated, and that's what causes it to pop. But then, of course, everybody thinks, "Oh, that's why the, the the inner tube's expanded." But the inner tube can't expand past the size of the tire. And if you ever tried to blow an inner tube up, well, it becomes the size of a car wheel before anything happens, doesn't it? I mean, you can Absolutely. float down the river inside one, with be- um.
1: yeah, and people do. I and think you're right. Do. I think it is all about um, it, it's it's nerves. It's it's nerves, and I <laughs> had. Whenever I go into a transition before the race, now it's it just looks like like I've gone to Las Vegas and I'm at an OCD convention hmm. because that's what it is. It's people who are you got to check in and reach. How many times like if I leave now to go on a training ride and I've forgotten my phone on the kitchen table, I'll come back ten kilometers to get my phone even though I use it for nothing yeah. while I'm out. Maybe I'll snap a, a selfie, uh, you know, that I can put on Instagram later. But but it's not important. I have my Wahoo. That's going to tell me where I need to go. I don't need my phone, but I'll come back. It's, it's just like a small, it just mm. makes you feel more comfortable. And I, my first couple of races after I became comfortable and I would look at the people doing all that stuff, there was a little judgmental switch in my head. And, and then I, I got over it because it's like, dude, it, it's just they're just dealing with nerves differently than you do um because that that's going to make the guy feel better to take the air out and put it back in and that's fine great good for him if if they need to you know spin the tires and make, and, and look at it to see if it's out of line which it's not going to be like you said if like what was the last time I, I, I don't pump up my tires every day when i ride you know what i mean i i check them every second or third time just no oh, squall that one's a bit soft oh it'll do for today and then you know maybe i'll pump it tomorrow you don't mm-hmm. you don't change the area. I don't, I don't grease my chain and clean my chain after every every ride. Um so why would it and and I've gone the bike that I rode yesterday hasn't been tuned up since I raced an Alp d'Huez on it in 2019 in July. Right. And I've ridden thousands of kilometers on it. I just haven't ridden it in a couple of weeks because I just got a new gravel bike, so that's what I've been riding. And I rode it and it, it it's fine. Yeah, the gearing takes a little while to get to the next, you know, the next co- um, cog. But eh, it'll do. I could race on it if I had to.
0: I, I would say that the whole thing about getting the right gear, though, is uh, is something that even the pros make a mistake with. the The WTS race we have in Leeds here is uh, the swim. Traditionally, has been in a park, and then they they do a point to point, so they ride out of the park and down into the city which is about 15 K and then they do loops of the city and then the run takes place in the city. But to get out of the park, there's quite a steep hill of about two or 300 meters. And it's, it's interesting to see the number of pros that are in the wrong gear. And then of course they jump on the bike and they're in the downhill gear, not the uphill gear. And they're just, (laughs) they're collapsing into the crowd and into the barriers and falling off and, you know, weaving all over the place and taking out other people. So, um, yeah getting get the wrong gear is something that I think uh, is is easy to do no, no matter what level you're at um, absolutely yeah. So there was the kit thing. There's the language thing as well, isn't there? Because when you're new to this, you hear all these people that come from the same clubs and they, they all know each other. And so they start talking and, you know, what are you, well, you talk about things that you're using, what nutrition are you using? And I love the fact that you say you don't use nutrition, you use a hammer or a pair of scissors. You don't use nutrition, it's food. Um, but but we have, we we use words in different ways when we're talking about triathlon. And of course, like anybody that's invested in some sort of profession or, um or hobby you pick up the vernacular don't you you pick up the lingo and you talk to each other in that lingo so an outsider will sort of think oh, i wonder what they're on about then oh, yeah. um, and it's- again you, you you're a complete outsider and you feel like you want to join in this conversation but i don't want to make a fool of myself because i don't know what they're talking about when they talk about revs and uh and wattage and what's per kilo
1: oh yeah it's kind of like uh, when i go to the when my car needs a tune-up or i have to put snow tires on or whatever and I take it to the garage and the, the mechanic tells me what's wrong with it. He could be making that up because I have no idea what is. he's using yeah. words like flanges and X-valve. I don't just, dude, you could be totally making that up. Just fix it. But yeah, we tend to adopt the language that we hear, especially when you watch. And when you become a triathlete, it kind of consumes your whole being. So mm. whenever I train on my turbo, I'm watching youtube videos of triathlon um I, when i read stuff it's about triathlon 10 triathlon 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 i watch and you listen to the commentators you tend to adopt the the words that they use and certainly when you're hanging around uh before a race waiting to go to the bathroom or in transition you hear you hear all these these words and some of them drive me crazy and and then i find myself using the word nutrition you know, uh, as well. And I thought, what are you doing? (laughs) It's food. It's something that it's stuff that you're going to eat and drink. It's not nutrition. Like today I was watching while I I did a warm-up spin on my bike before I went swimming. And I was watching a YouTube video, Lance Armstrong, the move. I don't know if you've ever watched that. And they were talking about the tour and Lance, he always comes on and he gives uh, like advertisements for the products that he is invested in. And one of them is a non-alcoholized beer company and he said you don't have to be an alcoholic or something you can just be sober curious sober curious what is that (laughs) like that's a made-up thing (laughs) you mean like a person (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) sober curious (laughs) i'm very sober curious
1: oh yeah yeah i'm curious about
0: sobriety yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you you hear language and and lingo and, and you you can until you've done a few triathlons it is very foreign. And like you said, sometimes you want to jump in, but you don't want to use the wrong word and don't have everybody look at you like, who's the freak? You know.
0: Well, that, but, that's yeah. and that's one of the problems with some of the forums, <laughs> isn't it, as well, is that they, they are a bit cliquey and you hear people sort of ju- jumping in and having conversations and you chime in on a post, you know, adding your bit and nobody answers you. No, you get no likes, you get no answers. And it's again, it's a bit like at school where you're the new kid and everybody's going like, who is that freak? You know, let's ignore him and carry on without him. Um, when when did you feel like you started to be part of the group, then part of the gang? Did it take a couple of years? It took
1: it took a full a full year. Uh, once I got back to, I did Syracuse, and then I you know I did a few races, did the World Championships, and then the winter happened. And I don't race in the winter, and then my first race again the next summer was Syracuse. So everything was familiar, um, and that's when and I remember waiting in line before the race with my wetsuit up to my waist. Um, to go to the bathroom the same lineup I had been in the year before and it was like okay everything was okay now now I get it I still would listen to the people talk about all their stuff and and think it was a lot of it was ridiculous but but now it's like okay I I I belong here this year um it wasn't like the year before where I I remember I got out i did my transition thing, put my wetsuit on up to my waist, just because everybody else did. And I held my, my goggles in one hand. And I saw one guy stuff his bathing cap in his wetsuit in front of it, like in the fold, because it was folded at his waist. So I I better do that too. And then I got to go to the bathroom. And I remember the day before there was thousands of porta potties um, in the parking lot. And it was empty. In fact, they were all zip tied the day before. And then, okay, race day. Oh yeah, I remember those porter parties. I'm going to go to the bathroom there. And I sauntered up, and there was millions of people. It so it seemed all in their wetsuits. I thought, why are these people hanging around here? The beach is down that way. And I walked to the front of the line. I went to go in the porter potty and some guy looked at me like, "Dude, where are you going?" I got to go and take a dump. And he said, "Well, yeah. Well, the lineups back there." And I thought, oh, I'm not going to make it. There's no way I'm going to make this without pooping my wetsuit. Oh, I, think, I did, yeah. of course.
0: You did I mean, make I did, it. I did make not, it. Yeah, I, did, did I did make poop. it. i <laughs> <laughs> poop the wetsuit.
1: I peed the wetsuit. I didn't poop Yeah.
0: It. Yes. I, after a while, I discovered, I remember one race, <laughs> discovering that there was a VIP section, not for athletes, but for spectators, you know. Um, and I saw all these people going in with these armbands into this area where they'd got like fern trees outside, and there was a reception and waiting staff. But they'd also got ten porta potties for them to use exclusively, and nobody was using them because they were all inside enjoying their breakfast before they went out on the boat to watch the swim. And there was no there was no security on the door there. He was he was a bit further in to get everybody into the to the marquee. And I thought, you know, like there's hundreds of people queuing up around there and there's 10 porta potties empty here. And they were all Mm -hmm. VIP ones as well with perfume and soft toilet roll and everything. So I said to this guy, hey, look, let's go in those VIP things before. So we sneaked in and uh, he said, that was a good move, mate. And then we went out and we told a whole load of people. I reckon they they weren't very happy with us (laughs) by the time half the triathlon world had used them.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the, the opposite tends to happen and like you know, i'm a relatively calm i'm a teacher, so you have to be kind of calm and accept bad behavior uh, much of the day but things that drive me crazy is when you're at a race, it's before the the start, and there are thousands of people lined up at the porter potties, and you're behind a an athlete with his or her family mm. and the family goes into the bathroom yeah and it's uh, you like I really, I want to punch you in the face because like, I really have to go. I need to go. I got to get to the starting line soon. And you're, you're, you just got to wait five minutes and nobody's going to be mm. here and you can just go to the bathroom. Well, yeah, I, it's one I of those things.
0: yeah. And I, I, when I'm commentating and I'm, I'm waiting for everybody to, you know, near the swim start and we're trying to hurry them along, you know, all the yellow caps, we need you down here. Now you've got five minutes. There's always one guy that's don't be the one. No matter how often we say it, don't be the one guy who's the last one. It's, Here he comes. He's the one guy. You're the one, my friend. You're the one. And he's running the opposite direction because he's got no goggles, or he's like, or he's coming down late into the queue, trying to push past the blue hats and the orange hats. He's got his wetsuit over his arm. He's sweating now because he was in that queue for the car park and he didn't take account of that. And so he was late getting in there. Um, or you see them stood in the back of the queue for the porta potty. And they're oh, yeah. already panicking. The, the stomachs are already doing somersaults, and now we're calling five minutes. Five minutes for yellow caps, and he's a yellow cap. And in the end, we'll have to say to somebody, "Look, can you let this let this guy go in first here?" But um, that that yeah. never seems to go very quickly, does it? When you're in a hurry.
1: Yeah, and the mental game that you play to yourself when you're you are that guy in line, and there's all blue and purple caps ahead of you, and you got the yellow one, and you got to get to the starting line. There's that battle that you play. Do I ask these people, can I do mine if I go before you? Because you know they have to go just as badly as you do. And who are you? Am I really more important? I'm just, I'm an age grouper. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not Lionel Sanders late for the start. (laughs) In fact, they'll probably delay the start for him, but not, you know, not for, not for me.
0: But, but have you ever tried to do that in in the airport when, when, you know, you've had a problem with security and you've got a connecting flight and you're trying to, you're trying to jump, excuse me, do you mind if I go in front of you? And then you get somebody who says, Look, pal, I was here early, so I didn't have to do this. What's wrong with your timekeeping? They're like, oh, come on, man, don't do this to me right now. Just let me through.
1: <laughs> You're definitely right, but I gotta go.
0: Yeah. So, you've in your book, you relay several, several embarrassing porta potty moments when you weren't in the queue, but when you get in there. And it seems like a lot of it was down to your pre-race nutrition. Now the, the podcast I've got out today is all about, um, is all about race week and race day nutrition, but none of it matches up to what you eat the day before a race Brock
1: <laughs> or what I used to eat anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, well, here's the thing. My first thing is that I don't think for me, that's the first thing is that every athlete is, is their own self. So everybody does things differently. Foods react differently to certain people and so on. So everybody has their own, uh, pre-race nutrition. You can learn from other people, but at the end of the day, it is yours. Um, but I didn't really know much from before my first couple of triathlons. So though I do believe you shouldn't change much, um, the week before, certainly not the night before a race, cause you don't want to throw like a, a, a really like chicken curry Vindaloo with high spices that you've never had before the night before a race. Cause that might, that might come back to burn you literally. Um, but you know, I, I tend to eat a lot because I, I train a lot five you know hours a day. So you need a lot of calories. And my biggest problem that I still have now is after dinner, I don't stop eating until my eyes are closed and I'm breathing heavily to this day. I still do that. Um, so I did that the night before the race and I'm nervous. So, you know, yeah, yeah I'll just eat this. I'll just eat some more. Um, and I, it wasn't what I ate so much, although that wasn't super smart. It was the quantity of food that I used to eat the night before. So no matter how much I would, uh, go to the bathroom in the morning before the race, and I do, I never have a problem with that. There was still, uh, you know, a couple of, shots left in the chamber during race time
0: i'm gonna um, just uh, i'm gonna just run through one of i made a note of one of your pre-race meals um i think you actually woke up didn't you to finish this one off mm-hmm. um so you had been out for dinner so you'd, you'd been out for p- pasta you'd had you'd had your pasta and then you'd had half a piece half a pizza which obviously somebody else at your table didn't want to eat um you then got back oh you'd oh you'd had some you'd had you'd had a bottle of wine as well a yes, bottle did. of wine, not a glass of wine. A bottle of wine. um You woke up in the middle of the night. You were still feeling hungry. Two bowls of raisin bran plus yes. the milk. Pop tarts. Oh yeah. Doing well to avoid burning the roof of your mouth to uh, a cinder <laughs> with those. um Yeah. That, now that feels like uh, seven or eight hours before a race. There's an awful lot of uh, uh, there's an awful lot in the chamber to come out there.
1: Oh yeah, and that's the other thing that that. I did that day. And, and I think all of us do to a certain extent is it's kind of like let's say I have an injury and you go to three doctors to, to assess the injury. One says, "You've got to give up triathlon altogether. you're too old." One says, ah, maybe you could do it for a couple more." And the other one says, "Ah, oh, you're fine, just need a little bit of rehab. You're taking the rehab guy, right? That, yeah. That's the doctor you're going with. So the night before that race and the night before many races, you, 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 you lie to yourself. You know, it's, it's just like, well, it's carbo-loading. You're supposed to, you, I've heard about that. You need carbs. Or with the wine, you know, it's got antioxidants in it. I thought those were good for you. So the more, the merrier. And it calms you down, and which it doesn't, by the way. It does the opposite. Keeps you up all night. But so I just kept piling on. Now, I've gotten rid of that nutrition plan pretty much Altogether, although there are certain things that that you, because it's kind of like the OCD in transition, you've because you tried something once either by mistake or because something went wrong and that's all there was, and then you have a good race. For instance, mine is pop tarts. I always have to, even if I'm not hungry, I will have half a pop tart because I guess I'm superstitious. Because on that race that I spoke about in the book, I. That was my first Ironman branded race. And I came in second place in my aged group and I made it to the world championships. Um, So I'm never doing a race without pop tarts now. It's just, it's, I have to have that. That's my one sort of thing. But it is important. um, I find that though you have uh, a plan, I guess, or, or you have a, an idea of what you should do or what you do do, if it screws up for whatever reason, don't worry about it. That's, that's another piece of advice that I give people all the time. Newbies is don't, don't fret about that. There's a good chance you're going to have the race of your life. Take Sam long last week or two weeks ago in Coeur d'Alene. his flight was canceled. He didn't get there till the day before the race, couldn't do anything that he normally does. Couldn't get the food, couldn't do the proper training. His bike chain was one link too short and he won, you know, He won a big race, broke the course record. And he has now, you know, made a stamp on the Ironman world. And that happens all the time. I can remember playing hockey when I was a kid, forgetting a skate. And I'm missing, you can't skate on one skate in a hockey game. So I had to borrow one and I did very, had a great game. So it's, Mm. it takes your mind off of the minutia of the race and takes your worrying section and puts it on something else. So you, you don't have to worry about the race. I can worry about not having a skate.
0: You're, you're a, we've talked about your swimming and, and you running. So you, you, your race gets better, doesn't it? From, um, from the moment you exit the water. Absolutely. Um, my, mine's always been the other way around. I come out quite high in the race still now. Um, and certainly in the top few in my age group, you know, top, certainly the top 10 in my age group. Um, but what that means is that you get, you then get passed by every man and his dog on a bike, <laughs> And it feels like the whole field's come past you. It's it's not actually true, you know, but obviously not counting and less likely to be true in my age group that I'm getting passed by lots of people. But certainly now, at you know, in my 50s, I, I can come, if it's a mass start, I can come out with all the 30-year-olds and the 20-year-olds, And but then they're, they're all huge, big gear guys on the bike, and I'm getting passed. And, of course, with a helmet and goggles and glasses on, you can't tell how old people are, and you don't you don't get time to look at the, the numbers on the back. Um. I, I asked you an either or question there. Would you would you rather be a good runner and a, and a, and a poor swimmer or would you rather be a great swimmer and, and not so strong on the bike? Because it, it seems like it's way more fun to play Pac-Man, but then you've still got to get over your worst thing of the day, haven't you?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I would definitely, definitely prefer to be a poorer swimmer and better runner for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because I, I'm not a, a natural swimmer, um, I don't like it as much. Whereas, and that doesn't mean I don't like swimming. I actually look forward to going to the pool now, but, um, I love running and, and I love biking even more. Um, so those are two things that I would look forward to. Like today, I'm going to go on a very long ride this afternoon and I can't wait to do it. Whereas this morning swim, I thought maybe I should cancel because I have that podcast coming up, you know, maybe, maybe I need time to prepare it, but I went anyway and I had a good time. Um. But yeah, I would, and I love, I think it's for me, when I see someone ahead of me, whether they're in my age group or not, that's someone I need to pass. And just to, on a little side note is, is, um, I have nothing against compression socks, but I hate them because I can't see your age on your, on your left calf. <laughs> and it's like an erase. I want to know if when, when I'm, when I pass you, are you in my age group? Cause that makes me feel so much better if you are, and I'm okay. going past you. But yeah, I would prefer to play Pac-Man and and catch people. There's always there's always someone ahead of you, whether they're in their age group or not. So, oh, I can catch that person. I I don't think I could handle. It would never happen because I'm not fast enough as a swimmer. But if I was in the lead, completely, it's like oh I got I got. What do I do now? Just <laughs> who do I catch? I because like, I've been in the lead in running races before many many times, and I end up telling myself, oh that that tree or that fire hydrant, a telephone pole, that's another competitor and I have to catch that person. Mm. And when you're in the front, there's a guy on a mountain bike, you know, with the first male on the, on his back. So I just pretend that that's another competitor that I'm trying to get past. But yeah, I prefer, I would much prefer to be a better runner than a better swimmer.
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, on, on the occasional races where I've had a really good time, you know, I know I'm going well cause I'm catching people on the run, but Um, I remember doing the Norseman and I was actually, I think I was fifth out of the water there in the Norseman. And the first two hours is a climb out of the, out from the, by the fjord to the top of the plateau two hours. So it's like an Alpine climb, you know, eight to 10% gradient, just grinding away. And of course there were some of the, I think the guy, actually the guy that won was out in front of me, but you know, some of the guys that are going to finish in the top 10 were behind me, but they're Uber bikers. Mm. And, you know, it just felt like every man in the race was overtaking me going up that hill. and But they didn't just sort of go past slowly. They went past like pogachar in the tour, past all those <laughs> other guys, you know, where you feel like you're actually, am I am I riding my bike? Is the brake stuck on here? You know, what's happening? And uh, in the end, I achieved my goal of getting the black t-shirt there. And that was all I was bothered about. I wasn't bothered about my position relative to anybody else, just getting the black t-shirt. But still, it is so demoralizing to be, passed that quickly by people um and you you have to you have to put you have to try and put everything into perspective about right they're all the different age group maybe those are the pros they're the guys who are going to win well they're going to blow up later you know you've got all these little games in your head that you're telling yourself why why all these people are passing you um
1: all those games are essential too i I play those games games in the swim yeah people swim like uh, you've never had this happen to you obviously. i have no i have
0: i have but not often
1: but they, when they swim right over you i'm never mad at them because i just feel like such a little boy it's oh my god i wish i could be that good he just swam over the top of me like i was a piece yeah. of seaweed
0: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh man it's it's interesting listening to your uh, <laughs> listening to your stories and reading those because it did it did bring back some memories some good memories of things i've forgotten um i'm just thinking about those first triathlons you've done you've you've mentioned that you sort of you've given a few bits of advice to listeners here do you do you befriend people now that are in transition? You know, when you can see somebody that's doing the first race and they look a bit lost, do you go out of your way to help them and give them some advice now and make them feel more comfortable because you were there as well?
1: Yeah, I, I do if, if it looks like they'll receive it well because there are some people who yeah you've seen them. They're they're, they're too cool for school and they're going to do things their way. And, and, and like you've seen someone else, you know, try and help them. And they kind of blow them off. I know what I'm doing. So, okay, I'll leave those people alone. Um, in fact, I hope they puncture. If, if you're not going to be very nice, then whatever. But yeah, I will. Cause I'll just, you know, I've made that mistake before. And I, you know, I, I like, I wish someone had done that to me because I felt so lost that day. And I see it, you can see it just by looking in their eyes, what they do. And it's what I used to do. they, they're looking at their bike or they're pretending to look at their bike or their shoes or their helmet. But you can see that their, their pupils are are off scanning everyone around them to see what they're doing. And I always see this happen in every single race. You'll see a a noob squeeze their tire and then look around. Okay. The guy whose bike is next to me, he's nowhere to be seen. So they reach over and they squeeze that tire just to make sure, okay, mine's a little bit, mine's the same as his, that's gonna be okay then. Or, ooh, his is way stiffer than mine. I'm gonna need a pump. That's why people bring a pump. And now you're asking for pumps. Can I borrow your pump? Can I borrow your pump? Everybody's always nice about the pump thing, but it's just, yeah, I, I tend to try to help people out. I also, when you see them just so nervous, I always try, look, no matter what happens, it's gonna happen. You're gonna to get to the end of this race unless you get hurt or something like that and we're off puncture or whatever. Don't worry about it. Who cares? It's, it's just, it's just a race. You're not going to the Olympics today.
0: Well, and uh, you know, even if you were going to the Olympics and I've known in, uh, enough of the pros now to know that everybody is petrified on the start line, you know, whether yeah. it's the Olympics or whether it's the first triathlon, uh, as soon as, as soon as you enter the water, as soon as your foot hits the water or your face or your hands hit the water when you dive in, all of that anxiety goes away. But Imagine you're the Brownleys. You, you, you're you in a hotel in the centre of London. You look out your hotel window and you see half a million people there and they've all come into region, into Hyde Park to watch the triathlon. And most of them are British. And most of those British people have got Yorkshire flags, so they're from your neck of the woods. And they've all locked up and left the town to come and see you. And you've got to walk down there because you're the favourites and you're expected to win. Like You can't expect that... Those guys, with all the experience they had at that time, didn't feel a large amount of anxiety and nerves. And will it go right? You know, I'd rather be. You know, you, you're walking down there and you see somebody having a coffee and think, I'd rather be having a coffee there than going to do this race today. Everybody oh. feels the same, don't they? Everybody, absolutely,
1: absolutely. When you're uh, when you when I travel to a race and you're sleeping in a hotel and you wait, I wake up every hour on the hour, and there's always that kind of feeling of oh. I wish there was some way I could get out of it. Yeah. Today. Um, you know, the half of your brain says, no, that's stupid. Of course you want to do this. You've you've trained forever to do this. You're, you're as ready as you're ever going to be. And you're, you're, you're in good. You're good. You're good to go. But there's that little piece that would love for an excuse to get out of it. Once you finish the race, you're so happy. Like you you always have to try and think of what would, what would my future self think, Mm. You know darn well that the future you is going to be way happier if you do the race, whether it goes well or not. It's, it's better if you finish. I can remember a time I did an ultra marathon in Virginia that started at midnight, and I didn't finish. I actually got pulled off the course because I lost too much weight during, because they weighed us periodically, and I lost too much weight. So they took me off the course, and I was so happy that they said, you're not finishing. Your race is over. But I can remember and because I was so drained. I was, I felt awful. I was throwing up. Everything was going wrong, and they told me the race was over. And instantly, in in less than a second, less than the time it took to blink, I felt like a million dollars. It was like, oh my god, I could finish this race. I know I could finish this race now. Mm. And I even asked the guy, "Is it like?" He said, "No, we've taken your number. You're done," because. It's just that the, the weights it off you've, you've been able to get your mind on something else. And that's most of the battle. You always hear that half of the battle is in your brain when it comes to triathlon or any really, really long distance high endurance event. Um, and that's, that's where most people have the biggest problem, which is why that epiphany that happened to me in Las Vegas was so important
0: you seem to do an awful lot of training you mentioned that you do 5 hours a day and when i was when i was reading your book i was amazed at the amount of training you do but also you must be quite resilient you don't um, you don't seem to follow a conventional training program with with a warm up and a cool down you seem to go as hard as you can in every session and uh, um so it it made me wonder where that where that training philosophy came from yeah. I mean, you'd obviously been running for a while. Was that, was that how you trained for running? So you'd, you'd go out every session and just try and be better than the day before?
1: Uh, pretty much. Um, remembering I'm, I'm 53. So I grew up in the eighties and that was the era of no pain, no game. Mm. So uh, that's, that's the sort of mindset that was drilled every commercial on TV. You always saw a guy or a woman, actually it was usually a guy back then, Um, you know, running up stadium steps at five o'clock in the morning, hours before the next Still, And I
0: think you still do now.
1: Yeah. And that was, that was the image. And that was the the message that they wanted to send out. You have to do more, more is always better. And if you can do more and do it harder, even better. now I'm not saying that that's the right way to go. Like I coach, I coach cross country runners and I coach swimmers, (laughs) believe it or not. And, uh, basketball players, um, and, and I know that that's not the way to do it, but yeah, that is how I started with my triathlon training because coming from my, my running background, I knew from day one that that's not the way I should do it. You shouldn't just run 15 kilometers a day, basically as hard as you can that day. It's not always as hard as like tomorrow. I might be able to run harder or yesterday, not as hard, but today I'm going to run as hard as I can. I know that that's not the way to do it, but for me, it worked. It's kind of like the guy who goes to Las Vegas, puts a quarter in the slot machine, pulls the thing, and and wins a thousand dollars on his first try. That's a gambling problem waiting to happen, right? Um, whereas if he had lost, well, well, that's no fun. I lost my money. I'm gonna try something else. But for me, I, I, you know, my first marathon ever. I was trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I had no idea what that meant or how to do it but I knew that people qualified for Boston and that was the big goal. That was the only marathon I'd ever heard of. And I finished, I looked at my watch to 252. I don't know. I feel horrible. So I guess I didn't qualify and that was good enough. And that was based on that type of training method. So since then, uh, that's how I've always trained. What's funny is when I was younger and I did my kayaking and canoeing, everything was very structured. We were doing intervals at the age of 10. Um, and there were, we would have a hard workout in the morning and easy one in the afternoon and then an easy day. And then everything was very, very structured. So that's what I grew up with, but that's not what I did because I had success. Um, if I hadn't had success to this day, I still, I'm much more structured now, but I still more or less, my philosophy is you want to get better at swim, bike, and run than swim, bike, and run. It's it's reasonably simple. It's kind of like losing weight. Calories in, calories out. That's how it's done. You got to burn more than you take in. That's how you lose weight. It's a simple mathematical equation. If you want to get better at swimming, you swim. If you want to get better at running, you run and if you want to get better at biking, you bike. And, you know, if as much as your time will allow, do as much of it as you can. Well, I right guess now. Go. Sorry, right now I train 5 hours a day because it's the summer. I During the school year, it's closer to three, three and a half.
0: So, so I guess there's two points there and maybe they're at odds with each other. The first is that, and I think you mentioned at the beginning, and this is some of the experts that have been on my podcast from different fields have said, you know, you have to find what works for you. Um, And I think often, particularly as triathletes, they're reading forums and books and magazines and trying to work, trying to do what works for other people rather than finding their own. Um, However, I do wonder, you know, because you were, you were talking about watching the little the YouTube videos and reading this and reading that, you must have, you must have read forums and read the triathlete magazines in Canada and seen all of the other methods of training and had your head turned by those. Were you never tempted or did you just keep coming back to the, well, this is what works, so I'm going to stick with it, even if it's at odds with what the scientists are saying?
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's, it, that's basically, it's kind of like the OCD and transition. You do things that, you know, are ridiculous that I don't have to let the air out of my tire, but, but or people do it anyway, um, and they know it's ridiculous. They have to know that it's kind of ridiculous. Same thing for me. I, I, I when, when I made that, I started to make the transition to training smarter, um, it was a battle because like I said, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm heading out to go running today. Today's a run day, put the shoes on. I should do I should do a hill workout today. So we're gonna we're gonna do a five k warm up easy, just bring it up, and then we'll we'll start the intervals with the hills. Um, but then there's a switch in your brain saying, well, you know, you you were at the world championships last year and you finished in the top ten. You never did hill repeats before. Why don't you just do what you normally do? It's a battle.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so when like I said, it's when something works or it. Is it that that's the question though? Is that what worked? Or is it just that, you know, you, you raced well, um, could I have raced better with better training now? I know. Yeah, I can. Cause my times are better now than they were mm-hmm. eight years ago. And because I, and I think it's because I train smarter. Um, and the good thing is the thing that I'm 53. So, uh, one thing I never did before was rest. That was just, why would you do that? That's crazy. That's taking away time where you could get better. Um, Now I realize that the rest is going to make you better, right? Because each session is so important. Now at my age, you have kids and everything you, you only have, you know, even though I have five hours, I got to slot them in around my son's soccer practice and speed skating practice and all these other things and being a regular father. uh, So, that session has to be spot on or now with the pool, our pools only open 45 minutes at a time because of the pandemic, you got 45 minutes, you know, you don't have your hour and a half to, to go through all the drills that you used to do. Now it's mm-hmm. just 45 minutes, make them count.
0: Did, did any point, did you, I mean, you talk about this somewhat disparagingly um, about coaches. So did, did you ever think about getting a coach yourself?
1: Um, yes. Um,
0: and did you? The,
1: I did. <laughs> Uh, for the swim, right? Not, not for the run on the bike, be, because especially with the running, I am a running coach and I know that I could improve. I could probably improve with a coach. A couple of things factor in one finances. I, I, I don't, I don't have all the money in the world. Um, so to pay a, a coach for something that I do, it's like accountants don't, I think they do their own accounting. I don't know any, so maybe they do. Um, like a, a car mechanic, I, if I can fix my own car, I'm not going to bring it to another mechanic to fix. Mm. But the swim, absolutely. Um, my massage therapist, it, it was an NCAA swimmer. So I remember asking him, you know, would you mind? Because I really suck at swimming, or at least I think I suck. You mind coming out and having a look? And he do, I'll do that periodically. But I treat coaching, for me, um, and again, it's different for everybody. But for me, the coaching that I treat it more like, uh, like golfing or downhill skiing, it's lessons. It's a lesson mm. here, a lesson there. Um, not a not a steady on sort of st- on retainer coach who comes to every right. session. Or
0: there is one thing though, is that coaching, and I'm putting my coach's hat on here, okay. is that there's also the accountability. I mean, the, probably the easiest bit of my work is writing somebody's program you know I like to keep it as simple as possible so sometimes it will just be go out and run today but make sure you don't go too hard listen to your body you know keep the breathing easy right um but but it's the accountability. It's chatting to people. It's maybe asking the question, "What made you do that?" You know, um, why why weren't you able to get up to go to the pool this morning? You know, ah, oh, because you went to bed too late last night. Why were you going to bed too late? Oh, you were watching Netflix, right? Oh, well, you know, you said you wanted to get to Kona. Well, you no. know, so it's 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 the accountability as much as anything. And I and I do you know I've often pondered this question myself about who coaches the coaches, right? Right. So you're, you're a running coach and you know about running, but who coaches the coaches, who holds them accountable? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, well, that, I find what, well, what, with me again, I'm speaking for me. I, I never give this advice to anyone else. None of my runners, my son, I'm coaching right now in cross country and, and, and I make him take rests more than I ever used to. Um, but the motivation part for me, I, I that's, the training is what I look forward to every day. It's, it's, like it's my favorite part of every day that the motivation to get out and do the things is never a problem. I'm I remember you, you like on the, the, the questions that you sent me. Uh, one of them was you, you have students, you're a teacher. Yeah. Wouldn't you like if, if you saw your student making mistakes, wouldn't you offer them extra help or coach them somehow, teach, you know, get them a tutor, whatever. And absolutely I would. And I, as a high school teacher, I find that most students who have tutors outside of their teachers, um, let's say a math tutor, because you're struggling in math, much of the time is exactly what you're talking about. It's not that they're actually struggling in math. They're struggling in math because they're not putting in the work. And the tutor isn't actually showing them the math. They might actually show them how to do some of the math. But most of it is data accountability. Okay, your, your mom paid $50 for this hour session. Let's go. What, what do you got? What, let's see what you did in class today. Okay, let's work on this. Do you understand this part here? And if it, you know, just that extra motivation is what they need. Mm. That little sort of push along, that accountability. For myself, I, I tend not to need that. I needed it in the pool because I was finding that I was so afraid of looking silly in the pool it wasn't that I was afraid of the water. Uh, eventually, afraid of the water or afraid of the actual work that I would have to do. It was I. I got to get out of this yellow lane, this slow lane. And I'm. I, are there people looking at looking at me and saying, "Look at look at his elbows. Look at this idiot. He looks terrible."
0: Oh He's yeah, all, there will be. I can tell you. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. Of course <laughs> there
1: will be. But it's like. Uh, but I needed someone to come with me to say, "Look, why, why are you worried about him? Look at that guy. He's worse than you. So you, you got that." <laughs> you know what i mean um so yeah i did and i still have him uh come to see me periodically And i have to out up two two swim coaches believe it or not but no uh no i actually kind of have a semi coach but he's my physio which is another question you asked me
0: well it is another <laughs> yes now i mentioned that you, you... You know, in in the ratio of injuries to the volume of training you do, you seem to have got out of um, out of the last eight years pretty well. However, you you have had some injuries, and you refer to a lot of them as you're running along, and then there's a pop, um, and that can't be good. So you stop running for a bit, and you just leave it, and uh, and then you start again, and then it goes again. And I'm right. Get, get on the phone to a physio, man. You'll be back quicker, you know. And then and then at one point, your girlfriend suggesting go go to see the masseuse, you know. Like, yes, go on. Listen to her. Do the right thing. Oh, oh no, yeah. hold on. I've uh, and three weeks later, um, I'm out running, and uh, I thought it was better. And then uh, oh no, actually, it turned out it wasn't. And I'm like, just go and see a physio. What's the matter with you? So now that's my question to you: Is did you have an aversion to physio? Were you mistreated by one at school or something? <laughs>
1: I did. I I wasn't mistreated by one at school, but I did have an aversion to physio, but I had an aversion to everything whereby it it seemed that I needed help from someone else. Um, Same thing with the coaching. Uh, I I wanted to do everything myself. I want to feel self-sufficient, which is weird because I can't fix my own bike and I've never been able to, and I wish I could. But so, no, I didn't. I I would refuse. No, no, I'll get over this because when I was young, you know, you'd twist your ankle. I played football. I played. I played hockey. Yeah, you were level. young. There's,
0: a, there's. A, I'll let you into a secret it, though, Brock. You were young then. That's why you got better.
1: Exactly. And and <laughs> and I've learned that. And 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 my first experience with a physio was horrible. And it was it was as an adult. I was like forty eight years old, and they it was all just electrodes on the leg, and they kept putting mm. them on the wrong leg, and it was like, oh, you you're terrible at this. So I had an aversion to it. Now I do not. I actually have a physio he's my, again, he's a, it's a friend of mine. So I don't have to pay him. Um, well, I pay him with other things, but, um, I go to see him even when I'm not injured and my massage therapist, that's something I do regularly now because he, I have come to realize that what he does isn't hokum. I, I thought it was, I just thought it was hairy, very crap when I was young. Oh, what is that? That's like, that's like yoga and eating granola and stuff. You don't need that. Now I've learned that because I tried it and it it worked like, like instantly it was perfect. It it cured me because all I had was scar tissue. The first thing he said was a, it's not the muscle you think it is. Mm. And B you're not injured anymore. It's scar tissue. That's blocking the the movement of your limb. So he just moved it along and there you go. Bob's your uncle and I was good, but yeah, I did. I definitely did have an aversion to it back then. I do not. Now definitely do not. And now, now I tell people you 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 need to go see somebody you, which is good because because I've been through it, and I was that ignorant idiot who would get hurt and then try to run through it and then it would just get the injury worse and worse and worse. but I always did also kind of look back at because I had read the book the Iron War, right the, yeah. Dave Scott yeah. yeah and Dave Scott did that every year he he'd, he'd race Kona win. And then go through a funk for a couple of months where he did nothing. And and what he would say is like, he'd get fat, eat poorly, not train, get all frumpy, and then start training again and win Kona again. So it worked, right? So he didn't, it took him a long time to change that.
0: He's talked, um, I've, I've spoken to, I've spoken to Dave on the podcast a couple of times and he's, he's fairly open about that now that he did suffer bouts of depression as an athlete. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it wasn't just post race funk that a lot of people describe, particularly after Man, it was, um, it was definitely depression. And, uh, you know, some days he, he struggled to get out of the house and do sessions. So, uh, um, there's definitely, yeah, you, de- you can definitely tell the different outlooks on life from between him and Mark for sure.
1: Oh Yeah. And that's one thing that, that has made me become uh, a physio slash massage therapy convert and yoga for that matter, um, because I have a yoga person in my life too, um, that because I used to get injured and then I, I would suffer from depression mm-hmm. as well, because um, I do consider myself, it's an athlete and it's just a huge part of my life. It's, it's what I do to release everything to, you know, collect my thoughts. It's just my meditation time. It's my, my religion, it's whatever. Um, And when I'd get injured, I wouldn't have that. And I would sink low. Um, And now that I, that I've gone to physio and I've gone to massage therapy and I, a I've broken that barrier of when you need help, whatever it is, whether it's mental health or physical health, go see somebody. It's not, it doesn't make you a small little man. If you need help, everybody needs help. So I've broken through that barrier and epiphany, it helps. <laughs> so Right. So I don't fall into those depressions like I used to because a, because I get back on my feet faster because I'm getting help and c, well, I know that it's going to get better. So I don't have to worry about it quite as much as I used to.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I was lucky enough to be married to a physio, and then even when we split up, you know, we worked in the same thing. So I, I always used to get my treatment there, and uh, I've I've always felt the benefits of of seeing somebody who knows what they're doing because I, I just felt if you if you had the right physio, they the, the good ones find ways of advising you how you can keep on training around the injury so it's okay so you can't run but you could probably do a little bit of running and walking so at least you can keep going and you can cycle and you can do more swimming and you can do some deep water running in the pool and uh, you know because because they know because in, on your own you don't know do you am I making it worse you know it still hurts so I shouldn't be running Sure, no no you're okay you can do a bit of running just don't go and do the normal running so and again I think it's having that experienced head sort of saying exactly, showing you and telling you exactly what you can do that, that makes a difference as well. And, and, and also that person that then says, actually, I do think you need to stop now, you know, your legs hanging off and it's not good for you to carry on working, walking around like that.
1: I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think you just hit it on the head. It's the same thing with coaching. You, you, you know, someone could ask you, do you, do, would you ever consider having a coach or would you ever going to see a physio? No. I think you need to find the Z coach, the right coach and mm. the right physio, because as you've said, I've gone to see doctors who say, well, I've had, I actually had a doctor tell me straight up, what do you think you're doing at your age doing all that training? Like you're, it's ridiculous. Of course you're hurt. You should stop. Mm. Whereas my physio and my massage therapist were both very high level athletes and they know that a, I want to be able to get back on my feet as quickly as possible and B there's a way to do it whereby you can still get those endorphins from feeling like you're trained. You can still be active, even in the sport that got you hurt in the first place. You just, Like you just said, you have to dial it back a bit, maybe a little run, walk, run, walk, or,
0: you know. Exactly where I'm at at the moment. I've got a little bit of an Achilles injury. I had years of them, got rid of them had about three or four years of running without any problems and I just picked one up the other week and it's just I can get back to running and I am getting treatment I see my physio every month as a matter of course um and she's saying you can do a bit of running but it's still a little sore so I'm you know today's today's training was just to walk through the woods brisk walk through the woods for an hour keeps me on my feet um you know I still get Still get the benefit of being out there in nature. I can still swim and cycle, although I can't at the moment. I'm I've been told to self isolate because I've come into contact with somebody who's got coronavirus. So, oh yeah, um, no pool time for me at the moment. But you know, it's knowing it's knowing that you can do stuff, and that the world won't come to an end if you were uh, if 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 you stop for a while. Anyway, will it really? It's just uh, it's just a temporary it's just a temporary halt.
1: It's also some sometimes you need that time off. Like yeah. mentally yeah. and and just to to get oh. the fire going again, if nothing else.
0: Running's the one thing that batters me. So when I when I don't run, you know, it's frustrating that I can't run because I enjoy running when I'm when I'm when my body's healthy. But it's the one thing that makes my body feel more battered. So when I don't run, I actually feel a lot better. You know, I don't ache when I get out of bed in the morning. Ah, uh, right, Brock. Um, we we should tell before we go. We should tell people what your book's called. Um. It, you, I'll it's, let you do that because it's your book.
1: Okay. It's called My Coworkers Think I'm a Pro.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask you why they think you're a pro. Is that because you did a good job of walking around the school um looking like a pro or is it because the amount of training or is it because most of them were ignorant about triathlon and just thought you were the only person they knew?
1: Yes, <laughs> pretty much to all of that. Basically, because I... Uh, like I, I train a lot, so I'm a physic physical education teacher. So whenever the, my colleagues would see me, uh, would be because you don't see each other when you're in your classes teaching. So it would be on spares or at lunchtime, and I was always on the treadmill or on a spin cycle or in the weight room or doing something. So they thought, oh, he's training all the time. He must be professional. A, B, I travel to races. Because all the time. So, like, oh, where are you going this year? It's September, must be the world champion. Oh, I'm going to South Africa this year. Oh, so if you're traveling for a race, that's very expensive. They assume that I have some kind of professional contract, which I wish I had, but I don't because it is very expensive on a teacher's salary. So, yeah, and they're ignorant of, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean that in an insulting way at all. They just, They don't understand the sport. In fact, when you talk to them, their eyes glaze over because the distances that you're describing are something that they can only understand with a vehicle (laughs) or an airplane of some sort. Like they can't imagine riding a bike for 180 kilometers.
0: I I do find that even people who are uneducated about triathlon have probably heard of Ironman somehow. And most of them have probably seen Julie Morrow. um, um, Julie Moss. Julie Moss. Sorry. I've I've forgotten the name now. Uh, Yeah. The most, most of them have seen the Julie Moss video at some point with her crawling across the line or they've seen some stuff. And, and of course you do a triathlon. They say, Oh, so you do those Ironman things then. And they, they don't register that as a triathlon. It's like Ironman and triathlon, you know, and I've, the number of times I've spent, when I'm, when I've been traveling, the things I spend explaining to people are that Ironman and triathlon, the same thing. They're just different distances. and, what have you got in that box there? Is that a bike? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, even though there's a picture of a bike on it and it says bike, (laughs) you'll get the question. Is that a bike you've got in there? Um, Oh, the
1: other thing, you get the opposite sometimes too. You know, yeah, I am going to do an Ironman. So right away, the the word Ironman means, oh, I've seen that Julie Moss thing. Uh, I have actually seen that on TV before Ironman. It must be professionals because they only ever show the professionals, really. Yeah. So they assume that that's that. And then they do the the inevitable, well, my husband jogs. You should go jogging with
0: him. <laughs> yes, time. yeah. Well, well,
1: you know, I'm not to put your husband down, but I'm not just going to the, you know, I'm not doing a one kilometer jog. Yeah. I don't call it jogging. Let's call it that. Let's go there first.
0: But. Of course, now you're an author as well, Brock, which, which, and as we know, when you're an author, that automatically makes you an expert. And people like me ask you to come on podcasts and you're probably getting some invitations to speaking gigs now. And when you're an expert, people ask for your advice because you've written a book. So you must know the answers to everything. So, I mean, you've been very gracious in giving some very salient advice to to beginners here and, and based on your own experiences and mistakes. If you got to start your triathlon again, what, what would you do differently, or wouldn't you?
1: Uh, well, I, I, yeah, the, I would do some things differently. The first thing I would do, mostly most of it is is my training volume, um, would be different. It would be smaller. Um, I would also, because I knew and I know how to train properly, I would have I would have mixed up my sessions. I would definitely have put more rest in, but let's put all that aside. That's swimming and bi- uh, that's biking and running. Most of the things that I would change have to do with the swim, because uh, what I tried to do when I first started swimming, and I see this mistake made every single time I go to the pool. I saw it this morning before coming on this podcast. Um, people I find weak swimmers are training for swimming when they should be practicing swimming. Um, they, I saw, I saw a guy this morning in the, in the lane next to me, he took out his flutter board, took out his workout, dipped it in the water and slapped it up against the flutter board. And I looked over at it and I said, I, there's no way I could finish that. And I'm a way better swimmer than you. And then you see him swim and is he's dropping his elbows and his hand is not coming past his hip at all. And it's, and his, everything is wrong. Like everything is wrong yet. He's doing intervals. He's trying to get to the other end as fast as he can. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, A, you would go faster if you were smoother. If you were swimming more properly, you would get to the end faster, believe it or not, with half the amount of strokes that you're taking. The second thing I would tell myself is, look, the swim is a short portion of the race. So what you practice it so that you can do it smoothly, not necessarily so that you can go faster, though you will go faster but so that it's effortless now when i finish the swim in a race that's just my warm-up i don't feel tired at all it's it's smooth it's it's beautiful to look at i love watching a good swimmer by the way but it's just the swim's over with now it was it was i'm not tired i'm not breathing heavy now i can get on with the rest of my race so my biggest change would be to practice instead of training all the time
0: I, i agree with that one about the swimming by the way um I've lost count of the times that I've been asked, how do I get faster? And in order to take a minute off your 1500 meter time, you've got to put an awful lot of effort in over, over the winter. And I I think sometimes there's this impression that if you just train harder, that's going to happen naturally. And of course it doesn't. And that leads to frustration that I've been doing all this extra work and I'm not getting any faster. But if you can come out of the water having burnt less matches, then that means you've got those, you know, you've got that energy to spend on the bike and the run. And, and, you know, particularly in longer races, um, it's that last portion of the run where you need those matches the most, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I was never going to be a professional starting the, you know, starting the sport, at the age that I did and most age groupers, um, you're an age grouper and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you're competing against people of, of your age, uh, you don't need to worry so much about your speed early, especially on a really long race. It is a long day out. So save as many, like you said, save as many matches as you can. And the swim is a great place to do that. It's a great way to start your day because it's, such, it's the one part of the, the three events where technique means so much. You can't muscle your way through a swim. I mean, you can, but it's not going to make you any faster. Whereas when you do it nice and smooth, it it just feels, A, like a warm-up. B, you're getting ready for the rest of your day, but it just feels like art in motion. It's so beautiful. Mm. And when you're doing it right, that whole feel for the water thing, that's what it's all about, I've come to learn. is that It's that feeling the water. And when you finally get that, where you actually feel the water. I remember my swim coach the first time saying, that's what you got to shoot for, is a feel for the water. It was like learning how to drive a stick. They always pay, get that friction point with the clutch. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't, I don't know. I can't get it. And then click, there it is. Oh, and now my stroke rate is so much slower. I don't feel tired at all yet. Wow. It only took me 16 strokes to get to the other end. Hmm. It used to take me like 35.
0: Well, that's, that's great advice coming from somebody who used to be anxious about getting in the water, Brock. And uh, <laughs> ho- hopefully. Some of our listeners will be motivated to pick up your book and, and read some of the other stories, which obviously we haven't got time to to talk about all of them, and neither do I want to sort of spoil the contents of the book. Um, so Brock Gibbs, author of My Coworkers Think I'm a Pro. Thanks so much for being here today. I've really appreciated listening to your experiences, your advice, and, uh, and having you on the show.
1: Well, Simon, it's been absolutely my pleasure. I love doing it.
0: Okay, my friend. Well, take care. Enjoy the next race whenever that comes around for you. Probably 2022 by the sounds of it. And uh, maybe I'll see you out there one day. I hope so. Take care, my friend. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you to Brock for joining me on the High Performance Human podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Hopefully you enjoyed this show. So please make sure you subscribe on iTunes to get all future episodes or get the app for your mobile device. Oh, and please don't forget to leave a rating and review while you're there. Right, that's it for this week. I'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now... Stay healthy and stay focused on being a high performance human in every aspect of your life.